Welcome to Peas in a Pod. I'm Jake Wagner, medical resident, second year MedPeds resident. With me today I have Dr. Susan Ballinger, pediatric rheumatologist at Riley Hospital for Children. Thank you for coming, Dr. Ballinger. Oh, you're welcome, Jake. Thanks for asking me. We're here today to talk about lupus, pediatric lupus, because it is hard to diagnose and it's hard to remember all of those criteria. And so Dr. Ballinger is going to help us out. So pediatric lupus, Dr. Ballinger. How do I remember all 11 things? Yeah, well, I think one of the things you have to know before you just memorize stuff is to kind of understand the disease and kind of the basic pathophysiology of the disease. So lupus is an abnormality of the immune system. So what happens is, remember your immune system, you have T-cells and B-cells, and then complement. And in lupus, the T-cells don't work right. They either don't turn on or they don't turn off. Your B-cells, which make antibodies, have a polyclonal B-cell activation, so there's lots and lots of antibodies being made, which is why it's so hard to make the diagnosis, because if you see a sick child who has fevers and rashes and weight loss, and you're going to look for infectious causes, uh, they're going to have lots of antibodies that are positive, um, but n none that are specific. So you get you don't get clonal selection, you just get poly B polyclonal B-cell activation. And then complement tends to be low, and that has probably a combination of activation of complement and then not enough production of complement. So that's the underlying problem. And it's important to know that because when we talk about treatment and people say, well, if this is an immune problem, should we boost the immune system? The answer is no, your immune system is boosted more than well enough, it's just not regulated well. So it's going to be regulation of the immune system that we're going to look at um, in terms of treatment. But in terms, so then if that's the underlying pathophysiology, the basic um, presentation of it is that that abnormality, those that abnormality in the immune system, the inflammation that can cause in blood vessels and other places can happen anywhere in the body. And so if you remember that, you kind of can work from your head down and think about the different areas of the body that lupus involves. And like you said, there's about 11, there are 11 criteria for diagnosis of lupus. They're not really truly diagnostic criteria, they're more research criteria, but everybody mm. uses them. Didn't know that, yeah. Yeah, everybody kind of uses them when they're thinking about is this lupus or is it not lupus. So I can't remember 11 things. It's really hard for me to remember things. And as a kind of a teaching point, remembering three, three things is easier. So when you're teaching somebody something, you always want to have three important points on a slide because people really kind of either lose interest or can't keep track of three things. So it's kind of cheating because each of those three categories have subcategories. Um, so the first category I like to think about is rashes because everybody thinks about rashes when they think about lupus. Yeah. And there's three distinct rashes of lupus. They're not necessarily specific or pathognomonic for lupus, but they are associated with lupus. Uh, the least common that we see in kids is discoid rash, and the discoid rash is actually where lupus gets its name from. If you think about lupus is Latin, I think, for, for wolf, oh, yeah. so it looks like a wolf bite. Yeah. You're at Harry Potter, right? Lupin. Lupin, yeah, right. Yeah. So that's Excellent. where that's where that comes from. And so if you think about the discoid rash in particular, it looks like it's it's a real vasculitic looking rash. It's very scarring and it looks like kind of a bite of someone. So that's and you can have discoid lupus all by itself and have no systemic symptoms at all. Or you can have a discoid rash as part of systemic lupus erythematosus. The discoid rash is one of the three rashes. The other two, the malar rash, is kind of what people think of as the classic butterfly rash. Mm -hmm. It goes across the face, it goes from cheek to cheek, um, across the nose, but it spares the nasolabial fold. So if you're ever going to look at a picture on the boards, for example, you're going to look and see, is it all over the face or does it spare that area of kind of from nostril to the end of your lips? The nasolabial folds is important to kind of think about with lupus. And then the third is actually kind of a rash, and people think about it as a rash, but you also have to think about it as a problem within the immune system itself. It's, it's photosensitivity, and everybody, if you say photosensitivity, everybody thinks sunburn. And mm -hmm. the reality is you are sensitive to the sun, so you, you may be more likely to burn, but more important is you activate disease with exposure to the sun. So in a patient with lupus, for example, who has renal disease, if you expose them to the sun or they expose themselves to the sun, they're going to have increased proteinuria. 
they just have activate. other symptoms. Their other yeah. symptoms of lupus will get worse. If they have pericarditis, the pericarditis gets worse. If they actually activate disease by being exposed to the sun. And that's a really important kind of clue to the disease because a lot of kids will come in having a red rash on their face. It's worse in the sun. They get a little bit of a sunburn. You know, if that's the kind of rash that goes away in an hour or two, it's not a problem. If it doesn't go away for a few days and you feel worse when you go out in the sun, those are the sorts of things that make me think about photosensitivity and make me kind of be thinking about lupus more. Um, and that always leads me to the, you know, the preventative things that we talk about with families with lupus and that sunscreen. Sunscreen is really important. I tell kids to put your sunscreen on first thing in the morning, put it on halfway through the day, just like you brush your teeth every morning, put your sunscreen on. Because even when it doesn't look sunny outside, if the sun is out, you're you need sunscreen, um, and when they, especially this time of year, people going to the beach, you have both you have both direct sunlight and reflective sunlight light off the sand and the water. If you go skiing in the winter, you have reflective sunlight off the snow. So you really have to sunscreen and covering up. There's no better sunscreen than just being covered up, but not everybody covers up all day. So those are the three rashes. So that's the first category is rashes. Um, the second category is again different organ systems, and I'm a rheumatologist. I'm pretty simplistic. I like to start on my head and work my way down. So the first part is going to be your brain. Mm -hmm. um, and CNS lupus is really interesting. For me, it's one of the hardest things to diagnose because the symptoms are everything from headache to coma and everything in between. And so you really kind of have to worry about, well, is this really CNS lupus truly or is this a uh, other manifestation of another problem in lupus. Later on, we'll talk about renal disease. So if they're hypertensive or they have uremia, you can have CNS symptoms. You can have a true CNS vasculitis, which also isn't CNS lupus. CNS lupus itself is really a cerebritis, so it's inflammation in the brain itself. On MRI, you may see uh, a loss of the very distinct um, border between white matter and gray matter is kind of what people think about in CNS lupus. You also may see a little bit of a shrinkage of the brain in patients with long-term lupus. It's just, it doesn't quite fill the cavity as well. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of shocking thing when you see it. But functionally, what kids will come in, they're not going to come in, they may come in complaining of headaches, they may come in complaining, uh, or families complaining of behavioral changes, but a lot of the kids really start having cognitive difficulties that are subtle and school-related. They seem to have a preferential problem with executive functioning, so math, and so that's why we do serial sevens to look for that. And you want to subtract by seven because every time you subtract, you have to carry a number, go from odd to even numbers. So that's why seven is the, the number that I think is chosen for that. They don't, they don't, and it, the other nice thing about a kid and trying to figure out kids with cognitive changes, it's, for me, I'm not an adult rheumatologist, but it would be a little embarrassing to ask a, a family, you know, family member, so could you never balance your checkbook or do you just be able to do it really well and now you can't whereas when kids because they're in most of them are in a school situation they've been having testing going on along and a teacher can say hey you know this child did a lot better at the beginning of the school year than they're doing now um, there's a problem going on you know so that's those are the sorts of things with CNS disease again behavioral changes you can see everything you know psychosis and changes like that about CNS lupus sort of contributes a lot to that great imitator status absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and the CNS stuff is, is hard because it's not something you can always put your hand around and again it can be a manifestation of other problems um, then working my way down I think about uh, kids with lupus can get mucositis, particularly can get uh, lesions on their hard palate, and uh, sometimes they're described as painless lesions. So they're lesions on the hard palate. Sometimes they don't bother them at all. Sometimes they can be painful. Um, sometimes they'll also get lesions on their gums, but again, the, the palatal petechiae and palatal lesions are going to be a common manifestation of, of lupus. Then working my way down again, um, I think about serositis, and serositis means inflammation in any encapsulated organ. So that includes pericarditis, pleuritis, and ascites. 
Anything that has a covering. Anything that's got a covering. Anything that's got a sack. You can have inflammation in the sack. Uh, and when I think about pericarditis and listening for a rub, I always try and make the teaching point that just because you don't hear a rub is not always a good sign because if the fluid becomes so, if the, the lining becomes so far away from the heart, you get a lot of fluid, you'll lose your rub as well. You usually have more distance heart sounds, but in a very thin child, you may say, oh, I don't hear a rub, I don't have to worry about it. And the best way to, to kind of imitate what a rub sounds like is if you take some hair right in front of your ear and just rub it between your fingers in front of the ear. That's kind of what a, a cardiac rub sounds like, or at least that's what I've been We'll pause for our listeners so they can yeah, all they do can it all, right for one second and give it, a, give it a sec. Excellent. So we have our friction rub, which on the boards we will probably get for questions. They probably will have that rub to us if I it's think, there. I think they might, yeah. You can have pleuritis, mm -hmm. uh, and that might pre present with chest pain. And again, chest pain, again, just jumping back to pericarditis, pain laying down worse than sitting up because you've got all this fluid around your heart, changes on your EKG, uh, and a pulsus paradoxus, which I don't think anybody does anymore because we don't have the, the, the manual sphygmomenometer, which is what you We don't, but we probably see diffuse ST wave, ST segment changes, yep. right? That's something that you might get on a test question. You might, and, you might, yeah, or, you or might just, actually remember as opposed to getting out that blood pressure cuff. and it's, it's, you know. more, it's more practical thing to look at. Very good. Um, and then ascites is just you're looking for fluid in the abdomen. What's interesting as a physical finding is in young women, their labia may get swollen because there's a there's there's a connection between the abdominal cavity and the labia. As in a young man, you're going to see testicular swelling, which they usually don't tell you about, but they may tell their parents about it because it's, it's kind of a frightening thing for people to have. And, and the young women who get it may have so much labial swelling that they can't urinate well that it's just kind of occludes the urethral opening. So it, it is something that's could be quite significant, but not something they're usually going to report. Yeah, and seemingly maybe unrelated, but any dependent edema, you can think sort of ascites and, ascites and acidic fluid. For and, sure, things that are not coming back, you're right, things that are not uh, draining well. So uh, we talked about CNS, mucositis, serositis. Um, working our way down into the back of the abdominal cavity, nephritis, um, and certainly the kidneys. Uh, you can have one of the nephrologists do a whole lecture on the different yeah. different stages of kidney disease. What I always like to tell people is it's one through four in order in terms of how much the glomerular are involved, but then then class five is totally different. That's membranous, and it's not a continuation of four. So it's just how you think it is right up until oh, the, right very until the, the very end. Class five. Very good. And then um, you know, the presentation of renal disease, which is going to be proteinuria, hematuria. Not necessarily something that you're going to see that the family is going to come in and say, oh, yeah, they've got foamy urine. That's not the usual thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but blood pressure issues. So a lot of times if I get an urgent call about a patient with lupus, one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, what's their blood pressure? Is their blood pressure okay? Because that's a really good sign. Uh, well, not a good sign. It's a bad sign, but it's a sign that there's, but a that there's renal, sure. that, there's, that there's likely to be renal disease. So the kids who have protein in the urine, depending on the amount, uh, may end up getting renal biopsy to help guide therapy. And then, so that's four, so there's five body things, and the last one is, is joints, so arthritis. And it's not uh, uncommon for someone to actually present with arthritis as the first presenting sign of lupus. So if you see, if I see a teenage girl, mm -hmm. uh, especially someone who's African-American or Hispanic I, or Asian, it seems to be there's... Sure disproportionate percentage of kids who have that involvement. Something like eight times more common in African-Americans, or, or no, females, and then it's four times more common in African-Americans. Yeah, so, so, so females over males for sure, yeah. especially after puberty. Predominantly females. Interestingly, if you look before puberty, it's equal, but there's so few kids who present before puberty that it's 
kind of a statistical blip. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 a large problem. So if I see a young a teenager who presents with arthritis, I will often screen for lupus just because I want to make sure I'm not missing that as a presenting sign, especially if they're sick, if they have fevers and weight loss and arthritis. That's not usually yeah. a presentation of JAA, um, although it can be. Um, so those are the five organ systems. So we talked about three rashes, five organ systems, and then my third category are all the labs. Um, my least favorite lab, but the most common lab, is the anti-nuclear antibody, or the ANA. Sure. Um, ANAs are Everyone's favorite. ubiquitous. Well, They're always positive, too, aren't they? It's weird. Positive. Weird how that happens. Especially in my clinic. I always tell you, that's, that's your ticket to get into a rheumatology clinic, is that positive It kind of ANA. is, isn't it? It is. And so we look at ANAs, and you know, you really want to have the lower positive, so 1 to 160 or less. There have been a couple of great studies that were done probably 20 years ago that looked predictively whether those patients were more likely to go on and have rheumatic disease later in life if they didn't have anything to suggest rheumatic disease when they presented to a rheumatology clinic besides you know joint pain. And those kids are not more likely to, to go on and have disease. So that's always hopefully reassuring to families. Um, about a third of normal healthy kids will have a positive ANA. So it's not, and that's a combination of things being false positive because it's very sensitive to sure. tests, but not a very specific test. Um, and true positives, people just have these autoantibodies that float around. Just because you have autoantibodies does not mean you have autoimmune disease. So ANAs are, again, both the bane and the boom of my existence. But uh, but I think people need to understand what they are. People get very scared about them. If you Google ANA, you know you come up with fifteen thousand hits, and all first you know five thousand have to do with lupus, and so people get very worried about about autoantibodies. And I think it's it's nice to be able to reassure most families after I've gone through a, a history and physical and looked at some other labs that the ANA is probably not specific sure. uh, or not significant. Um, so to recap, ANA useful when negative, but you're just getting yeah. started if positive. I, sort of, I would say that's true. What other labs? So you have a positive ANA. Where are we headed after that then? So if you're looking at lupus diagnosis, if you're looking at the criteria, I usually then go to, I'll get a CBC, mm -hmm. you want to see, because any of the cell lines can be decreased in lupus. Uh, white cells, when they're decreased, it's specifically lymphocytes, or more likely to be lymphocytes. So you get a lymph, you get a leukopenia, decreased white count, specifically a lymphopenia. Mm -hmm. But platelets can be low, you know, thrombocytopenia, you can get a pretty f profound anemia. The anemia is interesting because it could be both bone marrow not working or hemolysis. And you can get plate weight antibodies too, all, all sorts of things. Virtually any flavor of bone marrow suppression. You can have, you can, yeah. You can have. It's, it's fun stuff. So that's why we work closely with the nephrologists and the sure. hematologists and infectious disease docs. It's a, it's a group effort. Yeah. So that's um, CBC especially useful. CBC is great. CBCs are very useful for a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and then there's other antibodies. And so that's when we start getting into the, the double-stranded DNA, which is a much more specific um, test for lupus. Um, and then there's couplets of what they call ENAs or extractable nuclear antigens. One couplet is SSA and SSB, which are also known as Rho and La. And those are actually important um, in a disease called neonatal lupus, which is seen in newborns um, where they get rash and heart block. That's a fun question they like to ask about on the boards. The interesting thing about neonatal lupus is only 25% of babies with neonatal lupus are born to mothers who have known rheumatic disease. Another 25% of those babies will, their mothers will develop rheumatic disease at some point in time, but that means there's a bunch of women out there who have positive antibodies who don't have disease themselves, but who can pass these antibodies on to their infants during gestation and cause neonatal lupus. So an infant might be sort of the, the first presenting for mom. Absolutely. You know, what's been going on. We, we, the infant will have it, and then we can diagnose mom later on. It's because we got those SSA and SSB or Roland Law 
Sorry, right, so the, the infant will usually present either with a rash, a photosensitive kind of rash, with cytopenias, or or with heart block. Yeah. So those are fascinating. It's, it's and heart. interesting. Okay, you guys, you know what that sound means. It means pay attention. In neonatal lupus, these are babies who present with lupus after being born to a mother with antibodies. The most associated antibodies with neonatal lupus are anti-SSA, SSA. Both mom and baby often will have these. Babies usually present with a rash on their trunk, but the most important thing to remember is that these infants can have third-degree heart block, which can lead to death. So if you're ever given a question of a patient, a baby who dies and their mother had lupus, the most likely cause of the death would probably be congenital heart block. It's also important if a baby presents with bradycardia to think about complete heart block and obtain an EKG. Some of these babies will die in utero from hydrops fatalis as well. So remember, neonatal lupus, congenital complete heart block, anti-SSA antibody. And then the other autoantibodies that we think about are Smith and ribonuclear protein. So Smith is interesting because Smith, Smith anti-Smith. to pause, we sometimes see as SM. Is that's that true. true, right? So that took me forever to figure out as a student, right? That with a smooth muscle. That's smooth a whole, muscle. That's a whole different, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole different problem. But yeah, the anti-Smith is very specific for lupus, but not so common in lupus. So some people, depending on, on what, what you read, maybe 15% of people with lupus will have a Smith, but everybody who has a Smith has lupus, essentially. So you have Smith... You, you have lupus, you're done. For the most part, yeah. Okay. And then ribonuclear protein is like Smith, but if you if you have both, you have lupus. If you only have one, if you only have RNP, then it's a disease called mixed connective tissue disease, which is like a combination of lupus and square nerve. So we have to kind of think about that. And then there's other labs that we do get for lupus. And again, when we're to, to make the diagnosis, I talked about renal disease, so you want to check the urine. Sure. So for the general pediatrician in their office who has a mom come in and say, I'm worried my daughter has lupus, or the child comes in with a rash, or it's usually when I get the phone call, it's usually I was on vacation and my partner checked an ANA, now what do I do? Yes. And so I always want to know what the context was. And it's often kind of a teenage girl who's got fatigue and maybe some joint pain and maybe a family history of autoimmune disease. The hard part with the family history is where a third of normal healthy kids will have a positive ANA, over half of kids who have a first-degree relative with lupus will have a positive ANA. So when parents come in and say, when a mom comes in and says, I have lupus, can you test my daughter? More times than not, I'd rather talk with them about the clinical context of what's going going on because the tests may not be helpful. Right. So you have to be really careful just throwing those tests out to get done. But let's say you have a patient who comes in and the family really is very, very concerned, and you are as well because maybe they have headaches and some, you know, some element of photosensitivity to their to their rash and and so to me the best um, screening tests to do would be a CBC mm-hmm. because you want to check for you can, it, it shows you cyto, all your cytopenias it can also help with your differential if you're thinking about well they're tired all the time maybe they're just anemic if they're having bruising maybe they're just throwing cytopenia so a CBC is very very helpful I like to get a urinalysis urinalysis is more sensitive than a B1 and creatinine to look for renal disease 
because you can lose a significant percentage of your renal function before your mean arm creatinine are bumped up. Um, now, if they're abnormal, that's a problem as well. But again, if you're just screening for your for for renal disease, I, I think a UA is is most helpful because the threshold seems lower to have proteinuria. And we're checking for protein on that. You're checking right? yeah. for blood and protein. And then if you find protein, you can do a, a spot urine protein, a spot urine creatinine, and you want to do a protein to creatinine ratio. Anything above 0.2 is abnormal and probably at least needs to get discussed with a nephrologist if not having to see a nephrologist. Excellent. And then I like to get complements. I like to get C3 and C4. Complements are part of the immune system that help kind of they're the first line of defense against a foreign antigen, and there were nine proteins that were cleverly named C1 through 9, but 3 and 4 are kind of the pivotal role, uh, one in terms of the classical pathway of complement activation, with, which is an antigen-antibody complex, but then the other in terms of the alternative pathway, which is evolutionarily a more ancient pathway, even invertebrates have have an a, um, alternative pathway, and that's just a pathway that just keeps kind of turning over on itself and keeps itself activated and then can amplify or increase when there's a problem. So you want to check both of those, and they can, they're usually both low. They'll be low. low. They've gotten used up. They've been used up or they're being consumed or they're not making enough and they're not regulating them well. One of the above. Or Very all right. of the above. Or all of the above. All of the above, yeah. That's excellent. So to recap, so lupus, a dysregulated polyclonal proliferation of B cells and T cells. B-cells and T-cells that are just gone awry mm-hmm. and polyclonal. Unlike, you know, if you're infected with some sort of bacteria or something, it's going to be a fingerprint of that bacteria. You'll see a monoclonal response. Which is your B-cells, right? Yeah, and your T-cells cells can turn on and off depending on what your B-cells and your complement do. And they're not doing that either. Okay. So, yeah. And the immune system causing those sort of type 3 interaction can cause chaos everywhere, mm-hmm. almost anywhere at once. Uh, which we kind of reviewed. So the question being, how do we contrast that or compare it with maybe a different sort of autoimmune or inflammatory condition, like, for example, uh, acute rheumatic fever or something where you have skin skin involvement, you've got joint involvement, maybe a part involvement. Sure. How do I tell those two apart? That's a good question. Um, I think the, the key pivotal piece of that is whether it's been a recent strep infection or not. So to invoke so history. history is great, history. right? To invoke a you know a history to invoke the criteria of rheumatic fever. Technically, you need to have a history of rheumatic of of strep, a recent strep infection. So that's real important. Either yeah, I had a sore throat last week, or someone doing an actual uh, anti-streptolysis and otitis um, to say yep, you're making lots of antibodies, and it's not just a little bit of antibody. If you think about rheumatic fever as an over enthusiastic response to strep, um, the kids who get rheumatic, true rheumatic fever have very high ASO is through the roof. Through the roof, 800 or above. It's it's real high, and those those children will often come in with similar symptoms. They'll have rashes, but their rash is usually an erythema marginatum rash, so it's more of a serpiginous looking rash, not necessarily in sun exposed areas. It can be anywhere on the body. Um, although lupus can be anywhere on the body. They will have, if you think about the Jones criteria, they'll have joints. It's usually a migratory polyarthritis. So it's, you have a big swollen ankle one day and then that gets better. And then the next day you have a big swollen wrist that's very painful and then that gets better. So it moves around as opposed to lupus arthritis, which is usually going to be additive. You know, so you'll have a big swollen knee and then the next week you'll have that big swollen knee and a big swollen ankle. And the next week you'll have two big swollen knees and a big swollen ankle. It's, It's additive versus dynamic rheumatic fever you'll have carditis which is different than the lupus pericarditis we talked about but what we didn't talk about before was you can get a 
myocarditis, you can get a valve abnormality in lupus. It's not that common and it can be associated with phospholipid antibodies, which we also didn't get into, but um, that's a Leibniz Sachs endocarditis. And so you'll have similar murmurs. So the differentiation for that was going to have to be an echocardiogram to look at the valve and see what the valves look like. And again, the clinical context is always important. Um, the other heart abnormality that you can get in rheumatic fever is a conduction abnormality. So your and that's PR, pretty classic. Yeah. That's classic. The PR interval being increased. We talked about the rash already. They get subcutaneous nodules in um, in rheumatic fever, which you don't usually see in lupus. Um, and then they get a kind of a, a, a dance-like movement to their hands called chorea. Sydenham described it. So it's Sydenham's chorea. And again, in patients with lupus with CNS disease, you can get a chorea as well. So you can see where those two diseases, they would love for you to compare and contrast them on something like the words. And you also, so, so again, then the distinction of that is clinical context along with what your labs are going to show. So in a patient with rheumatic fever, you're usually not going to get the cytopenias in your CBC. They're probably not going to have a positive ANA, although it may be false positive there that their ASO is okay. They probably won't have renal disease because you, even though you can get a, glomer, a post-strep glomerulonephritis, it's not usually in the context of rheumatic fever. And it's the post-strep GM where you have abnormalities that are complement more so than a rheumatic fever. The arthritis, again, is going to be a little bit different in terms of its presentation, and the rashes are going to be a little bit different, but it's all about context and yeah. what the patient's doing. Taking that history. Ages, too. So in rheumatic fever, it's going to probably, it's usually kids age 5 to 15 years, whereas in lupus, you're talking about kind of puberty and beyond. So, you know, if you have a 5-year-old, just playing the odds, you're more likely to have rheumatic fever. Lupus being predominantly more of a post-pubertal sort of yes, creature. or, or peri-pubertal. Peri-pubertal, even better. Um, so we can sort of briefly talk about, you could spend a whole fellowship talking about treatment, sure. a treatment for lupus, an overview. So, you know, there's hydroxychloroquine, there's steroids, there are non-biologic DMARDs, and there are biologics like rituximab and bilimumumab, mm-hmm. which is a tongue twister for anyone still listening. Uh, but... What I've seen on the board questions and practice that I've seen is complications from treatment. So can we just sort of do a brief overview of treatments and complications? Sure, and I think it's important to remember, Jake, I don't think a general pediatrician is going to be managing a patient with lupus, and that's why the boards are looking for what does a general pediatrician need to know about a patient who's on immunosuppressive medicines that could come into my office or may come into my office first before the rheumatologist needs to see them. So, um, you know, we all know about, well, Hopefully we all know about the side effects of steroids. Steroids are great. They work right away, but they're also evil because they cause lots and lots of side effects. I tell patients when they're reluctant to go on other meds, and like almost everybody gets the side effects of, of steroids. Some of the other drugs we talk about, almost nobody gets the side effects for. So you have to also kind of look at you know that, those sorts of issues. Steroids can cause weight gain. They, people stop growing in height for the period of time when they're on them, usually anything down to 0.25 milligrams per kilo per day. You're, you're not going to get linear growth. Uh, kids can get become hirsute, they can develop hypertension, which in the context of lupus where you're worried about renal disease anyway is a potential problem. Usually, especially because we're putting these kids on steroids, peripubertally they'll end up with stria um, and stretch marks, which is not a good thing. Yeah, especially um, so a teenage, your patient's a teenage, you know, female. Yeah. Hirsutism and stria in a teenager who is otherwise... Oh, and acne too. And acne, yeah. So, yeah it's the sort of three. more preoccupied maybe than, than most with image and, and yeah. how they look. It can be a, a significant deal. So not ones to just sort of forget. It is. It is. But hopefully the, the plan would be, you know, because prednisone works right away to put kids on prednisone for a short period of time while we're giving the other medications time to work. Hydroxychloroquine is a great drug. Um, it works 
works by stabilizing inflammatory cells, and it really helps to, to decrease the amount of time and sometimes the dose of prednisone we need to use. Uh, most kids tolerate it well. We don't usually use it in very young children because it's very bitter and it doesn't come in a liquid form, but most older kids will tolerate it fairly well. And then, the, like you said, the, non, the non-biologic DMARDs, things like methotrexate, used predominantly in kids who have joint involvement. So if they have arthritis as a predominant symptom, sometimes methotrexate is really helpful. Mycophenolate is very helpful as well, kind of going up the scale of immunosuppressants. Cyclophosphamide we used to use a lot more often in patients with, with renal disease, but we still use it fairly often because you can use it for a shorter period of time and it seems to um, put disease into remission for a longer period of time. So cyclophosphamide is still in our armamentarium, but we probably use it for shorter periods of time, uh, kind of more as an induction drug, if you will. Sure. But so then going back to what a general pediatrician is going to need to worry about all those drugs is they're all immunosuppressants. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeing the patient for their annual immunizations, for example, uh, no live virus immunizations, they just don't get them. But we do encourage and request that they get pneumococcal vaccine and meningococcal vaccine and make sure that they're up to date on those. So varicella is out, varicella, don't forget your pneumococcal vaccine. There you go, varicella and MMR. The MMR is also out the window. Yeah. And so we have a special note that we write for the kids who are on all these drugs that they can bring to school to say, yep, they, they can't get these because. And we also want to know if there's an outbreak in the school, just so that we can kind of plan, is this a kid we need to put on something prophylactically or just watch them and wait for an outbreak if they, if they get one. Also, the teratogenic effects on some of those more heavy, yes. heavy hitter. So, Mike, Mike, well, almost all of our DMARDs are, have some level of teratogenicity, and so we try and counsel the families about that and the patient. We talk to them about either using birth control or abstinence or you know just being aware. Mycophenolate in particular actually has a whole formal form consent to sign about about, you know, yes, my doctor told me about these things and stuff. I always find it interesting that the others don't because I'm not sure they're any less of a problem. But yeah, that's a big problem. So, and then cyclophosphamide in particular can potentially lead to problems with fertility down the line. So again, you're, you're having a young adult or a teenager who's not probably thinking about their fertility at the moment, but you have to really counsel them about issues that may come up later. Excellent. And then my favorite, the biologic. So Rituximab and belimumab. Ooh, yeah. still can't get it. Can you get it? Belimumab. Yeah, there it is. Um, so yeah, Benlista. You know, of those, rituximab is a great drug. It's actually a, um, it blocks B cell production, but it doesn't start working right away. You have to wait for the new cells to not be produced to give it regularly every six months. It's an or eloquent so. weapon. It's great. It's uh, we have some really great, you know, arrows in our quiver, so to yeah. speak these days that really were not available when I first started doing this. And so it's an exciting time in rheumatology. We have many more useful, less toxic drugs to use. But again, if, you, if you're not making your B cells, you're probably not going to be able to fight off your bacteria as well. And so you have to worry about those encapsulated organisms and other bacteria. It's my understanding the most common sort of complication too, is if you're wondering what's going to get you, what's going to be sort of the badness that, that comes with mm-hmm. the lupus, it's going to be some opportunistic infection that you unfortunately needed high doses of immunosuppression? Opportunistic or regular good old-fashioned bacterial infection that just 
gets so we really stress with our families. You know, if you have fever, especially fever that's unexplained. You know, if you have cold and runny nose, okay. But if you have cold and runny nose and you have fever for a couple, three days, that's high. We want to hear about it. Or if you just have fever for no reason, we worry about a cold bacteremia, even in the older kids. We worry about meningococcemia. We worry about things that other people may be exposed to and not get very sick from, but our patients may. And as far as monitoring kids on their therapy, so some of these myeloid suppressing agents were monitoring a CBC, anything else for monitoring? Yeah, routinely we look at CBCs not only for monitoring for medication side effect, but also looking at lupus activity. We look at liver functions and kidney functions. Uh, we look at urine and renal function. And then we do a good exam. You know, we want to ask them, you know, if a lupus patient starts losing weight and having lymphadenopathy and other things that could go along with their lupus, but make you think of a myeloproliferative disease, certainly doing scanning and, and, and looking further for a reason, especially if they're doing well with their lupus and they show no signs or labs that are consistent with active disease, then we really want to look hard for something else that might be going on. And of course, being the med peds in me, I can't help but bring up the one thing that I learned sort of researching. So one thing that we don't think about chronically over time, we actually consider these folks, it's about an equivalent of coronary artery disease if you're yeah. sort of chronically on this. That kind of surprises me. Can you maybe go into that a little bit? So these are adolescent or yeah, young adult patients. It's, it's an interesting question. And we, years ago, there was a a study looking at using statins in these in these kids and also just looking at development of, of artery disease, looking at their carotid arteries and stuff. And it turns out, and this is something I think people have known for a long time, there is a higher incidence of coronary artery disease in patients with lupus, whether it's drug-related um, or disease-related. There's a lot of inflammation in a lot of your vessels, and so, you know, that probably leads to a lot of deposition of, of bad things in your vessels and, and question is, how do you prevent it? What do you do? And I think the best thing you do is, is manage their disease well so that they're not as inflamed overall so that you decrease. Less chronic inflammation, yeah. less plaque burden. Hopefully. Is that something you see as a pediatric rheumatologist? We don't see it less as much. Um, I'm reminded of it when someone asks me questions or when my patients are getting ready to, to transition to the adult care. But certainly, um, you know, in the adult world, I think it's, you know, looking at a 30-year-old patient or a 40-year-old patient and seeing that or being aware of that in terms of monitoring. I, cool. I wouldn't be surprised if you know, over the years it becomes more of a pediatric issue again. It kind of seems to be in and out with what we're looking at, depending on. Very good. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast, Dr. Ballinger. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having Appreciate me. You. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. We can maybe do it again sometime for... Come back again for dermatomyositis. Various vasculitis. GIA. And, yeah. GIA. Excellent. All right. I'll have to figure out how to put the pictures with podcasts, but that wouldn't be a podcast then, right? No, we can, we can do it though. All right, thank you. <laughs> we have the technology. All right, let's do a quick recap on the definition and how to think about diagnosis when discussing SLE. So the way that Dr. Ballinger discusses it is three things. So the first system should, you should think of is rashes. They come in three flavors, discoid, malar, or photosensitivity. Then you want to think about organ systems and she likes to think of it from top down. So from head down, you can have brain involvement, which can manifest as behavioral changes, issues with math and school, psychosis. You can have mucositis, which often is palatal lesions. You can have serositis, anything with a sac. So pericarditis, pleuritis, ascites. You can have nephritis. You would look for this on a UA with elevated protein or blood. And then arthritis, so joint involvement, is kind of the classic initial finding of lupus. The other thing she talks about are labs. 
So remember that ANA has a high false positive rate and about a third of healthy kids will have a positive ANA. So that means a positive ANA does not mean that you have lupus. However, a negative ANA means you probably don't have lupus. So it is helpful when it's negative. More specific antibodies for lupus include double-stranded DNA, very specific for lupus, and also anti-Smith antibody. Anti-Smith antibody is rare, but when positive means you have lupus. Classically, it's taught that if you have four or more features, then you have lupus. So think about that on a test question. So if you have a malar rash or a discoid lesion or photosensitivity and arthritis and serositis and renal abnormalities, if you have four more of these things that we just talked about, then you should definitely consider lupus as one of the diagnoses. That's it. (laughs) 